Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 76. It's about World War I then, what was happening a hundred years ago this week, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. This week, Mike Schuster introduces us to the Battle of Bellow Wood. Ed Langle continues with a story about how the U.S. Marines turned the tide of Bellow Wood on June 11, 1918. Then, author Alan Axelrod tells us why this battle is considered by many as the birth of the modern U.S. Marine Corps. Historian Tom Faith talks to us about the U.S. State Department in World War I. Ken Maley joins us from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in San Francisco. Catherine Akey highlights the commemoration of World War I in social media. And a lot more today on World War I Centennial News, a weekly podcast brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. The theme of today's podcast is clear and dominant. It's defined by a single word, a word with many similar definitions. One is a situation of severe trial, or in which different elements interact, leading to become something new. It is the crucible. It is the Battle of Bellow Wood. So let's jump into our centennial time machine and go back 100 years this week to witness the crucible in the war that changed the world. We're going to open with Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, the events that begin this week in a wood only 50 miles east of Paris have become nearly mythic in the U.S. military lore, haven't they? They certainly have, Teo. So our headlines today, Bella Wood, crucial test for the Americans. Despite massive Allied losses, German march to Paris halted. Influenza now a factor. And this is special to the Great War Project. If there are any questions about the American warfighting skills and commitment, they are dispelled in these days on the Western Front a century ago. In the first week of June, the Germans attacked the Americans at a forest known as Bella Wood. Bella Wood turns into one of the most storied American battles of the First World War. As the American Marine Brigade was ordered into action, reports historian Martin Gilbert, a sergeant called out, Come on, you sons of bitches. Do you want to live forever? In the first day of the Bella Wood battle, more than a thousand American Marines lose their lives. In the face of such losses, some officers favor withdrawal. To that, another American is said to have shouted with indignation, retreat hell, we just got here. These words have entered the mythology of the American Marine Corps and are much quoted till this day. The battle for Bella Wood was not only about the American fighting spirit, though. It was strategically important. Should Bellawood have fallen to the Germans, that would have given them the way to press ever closer to Paris. Writes war historian John Keegan, the American Marine counterattack at Bellawood was but one contribution to a general response by French and British as well as American troops to the threat to Paris. The Marines add to their reputation for tenacity, Keegan reports, 
by steadfastly denying the German access to a strategic road, the capture of which would have more than doubled the railway capacity the Germans depended on to feed their offensive. Unknown to the Allies, writes Keegan, the Germans had already decided to halt their offensive in the first week of June in the face of mounting resistance and because once again the leading troops have overrun their supply columns, which lagged far behind the advancing infantry and their supporting artillery. The Germans, too, lost another 100,000 men and more. And while French, British, and American losses equaled theirs, Keegan observes, the Allies retained the ability to replace casualties while the Germans did not. Another crucial factor now emerged, writes Keegan, the German ability to sustain pressure on the Allies was also hampered by the first outbreak of the so-called Spanish influenza. Indeed, this influenza is spreading across the globe, but at this point a century ago, it has laid low nearly half a million German soldiers whose resistance, depressed by poor diet, was far lower than that of the well-fed Allied troops in the trenches opposite. The German command can no longer count upon massing a superiority of numbers for attack, observes war historian Keegan. So at this point in the war, the German command must make a crucial choice, one that could very possibly lead to the end of the war. The choice is between what is important but more difficult to achieve, an attack against the British in Flanders, or what was easier but of secondary significance, a drive toward Paris. The German military commander, General Erich Ludendorff, will delay making his choice for nearly a month. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project these days a century ago. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to his post is in the podcast notes. Dr. Edward Lengel is our segment host for America Emerges, Military Stories from World War I. He continues to explore those same events 100 years ago this week, filling in the details with direct accounts as we bear witness to the U.S. 2nd Division Marine Brigade as they assault the German positions, fighting with a fierce determination that the enemy didn't expect. Ed. No one can accuse the U.S. Marines of having forgotten Bellow Wood. Yet the names of the men who broke through the main German positions on June 11, 1918 and turned the tide of the battle are lost to posterity. They acted outside command control, by instinct and on their own initiative, and they made the difference. The first several days of the fight for Bellow Wood were nothing less than brutal. Again and again, the men of the U.S. 2nd Division's Marine Brigade assaulted the German positions, but advances were made by inches and at heavy cost. The defenders were brave, skilled men who used terrain to maximum advantage. German machine guns were carefully placed in mutual support, and German infantry moved through the woods with all the ease and confidence of Native Americans, hitting fast and hard before moving on to hit somewhere else. But the Marines learned fast. They'd been taught the importance of both teamwork and individual initiative. In the battle's first days, the Germans flummoxed the Americans with dirty tricks, calling out orders in English and using American bugle signals, making fake surrenders to draw the Marines out of cover, and even wearing American uniforms. Soon, however, the Marines did the same things back at them and threw in new tricks for good measure. The 43rd and 51st Marine Companies led the attack on June 11th, supported by the 18th and 55th Companies. First Lieutenant Elliot D. Cook, a platoon leader in the 18th Company, remembered moving into the woods. We entered a deep indentation of the woods and the shadows moved to surround us, he said. 
Without the slightest warning, those shadows suddenly were split apart by chattering, stabbing flames. A crackling sheath of machine gun bullets encased our battalion, closing on us fiercely. The Marines took severe casualties, but as they advanced, they fanned out in all directions, hitting the German lines at multiple points, and they found a soft spot. The 43rd and 18th companies hit a junction of two enemy regiments along a dry creek bed. Sensing weakness, unknown Marines pressed through the gap, and as soon as they passed it, they fanned out to their left and right, taking the shocked German infantry in the flank and rear. For the first time since the battle began, I actually shucked off fear like an old coat, Cook remembered. Duty, responsibility, and something like rage took command of my thoughts. Furiously firing from the hip, the Marines came on. A German survivor described the sheer terror of facing them. Gangs of 10 to 20 men, he said. Dashing conduct. Alcohol. Some of the wounded kept on in the attack. Our men threw hand grenades into these gangs, were simply ignored by the enemy. No idea of tactical principles. Fired while walking with rifle under the arm. They carried light machine guns with them. No hand grenades, but knives, revolvers, rifle butts, and bayonet. All big fellows. Powerful rowdies. No sort of leadership. German bugle signals. The Germans broke, fleeing north, further back into the woods. For a time, the Marines thought the battle was over. It wasn't. They'd broken the primary enemy strong point, but the Germans still held on to the northern sector of Bella Wood and intended to remain there. It would take many more Marine and U.S. Army attacks to root them out. Dr. Edward Langle is an American military historian and the author of Thunder and Flames, Americans in the Crucible of Combat, 1917 to 1918. We put the links in the podcast notes. Joining us now to further fill out the story of the Battle of Bella Wood is noted history author Alan Axelrod, whose book, Miracle at Bella Wood, The Birth of the Modern U.S. Marine Corps, is published by Lions Press. Alan, it's a great pleasure to have you join us today. Oh, wonderful to be with you. So, Alan, to open, if you were to describe this moment in one word, what would it be? Thermopylae. Okay, why did you choose that word? Well, you know, in 480 BC, the Battle of Thermopylae was, of course, the extraordinary encounter between some 100,000, 150,000 Persian invaders under Xerxes I and a Greek force of 7,000 who were marching to block the narrow coastal pass of Thermopylae. And when the Spartan king Leonidas, who was leading the Greeks, saw that his forces were about to be outflanked, he took with him to make a stand a mere 300 Spartans. Their job was to guard the retreat of the other Greeks. In the end, according to Herodotus, the Greeks lost 4,000 men, but the Persians lost at least 20,000. At Bella Wood, the Marines were put in a stunningly similar situation. They were fighting to prevent major elements of five German divisions from breaking through a concentrated area near the Marne, centered on this place called Bella Wood. Bella Wood, which was a tangle of old growth forest and undergrowth, and was about half the size of Central Park in New York. 
they were blocking this area to keep the Germans in this desperate offensive from advancing to Paris. And very likely, had they been able to break through and advance to Paris, the Great War would have been lost to the Allies. Alan, your book title calls this moment the birth of the modern U.S. Marine Corps. The Marines have been around for a long time, I mean, specifically since November 10th, 1775. Why is this the birthing? Well, because through most of their history, the Marines served as essentially guards and gunners aboard U.S. Navy ships. It was the same role that the Royal Marines served on British warships. Only very occasionally did American Marines serve on land, but mostly the Marines through the early 20th century were used as auxiliary troops and laborers, stevedores, they often called themselves. And the soldiers in the army mocked them as bellboys or bellhops because of their fancy blue and white uniforms. And in 1908, in fact, President Theodore Roosevelt was on the verge of abolishing the Marine Corps and just folding its personnel into the Navy or the Army. So what happened at Bellow Wood suddenly showed America and the rest of the world that the Marines were an elite force of modern warriors. General Pershing, who didn't even like the Marines, he resisted putting them in the American Expeditionary Force. After the battle, Pershing said that the deadliest weapon in the world is a United States Marine and his rifle. And in the United States, during this month-long encounter, young men mobbed Marine Corps recruiting offices eager to join the Marines and become what they were just beginning to call themselves the first to fight. Now, the entire 2nd Brigade actually engaged, right? Not just the Marine Division, but the entire brigade. But the Marines really did get the recognition. What was actually engaged in and around Bella Wood were two full Army divisions, though mainly at Bella Wood, the 2nd Division, with one brigade of Marines attached. And it was a total of about 10,000 Marines. There were also elements of the French 6th Army and the British 9th Corps. So the Marines were certainly a minority, but they were in the right place at the right time. They were where they needed to be to prevent the German forces from rushing through and getting control of the highway that went clear to Paris. The battle continues through almost the entire month. What happens to end it? What ended it, most simply put, was the Marines' determination to either drive the enemy out of what had become their last-ditch positions in this dark, twisted, overgrown forest, Bella Wood. The battle just went on and on until the Marines finally gained first a toehold in Bella Wood and then began clearing the Germans out. By clearing them out, they killed most of them. Nobody knows how many Germans died in this battle. Nobody knows how many were wounded. There were about 1,600 captured. As far as the U.S. forces that were lost, 1,811 were killed, including about 1,000 Marines, and just about 8,000 were wounded, including many Marines. By far, of course, most of the killed in action were Marines, and of the Marines directly engaged within Bella Woods, 
half were killed in action. That's why the battle ended. It was what military historians call a soldier's battle, a battle that was fought and won by the guys who were on the ground, almost irrespective of whatever higher command was trying to tell them. Amazing story. Thank you, Alan. Well, it's A, been a great pleasure to have you on the show, but we also want to invite you back soon to talk about another book that you've written about one of my favorite characters of the entire era, George Creel. So we look forward to that. That'd be wonderful. Well, thank you for coming by and joining us today. Great pleasure. Thank you. Alan Axelrod is a historian and the author of many books, including Miracle at Bellow Wood, The Birth of the Modern U.S. Marine Corps. A hundred years ago this week, in the war in the sky, Douglas Campbell, America's newly minted and first U.S.-trained air ace, scores his sixth and final aerial victory. Now, during this last action, Campbell was wounded by an exploding artillery shell and was sent back to the United States to recover from severe shrapnel injuries to his back. After the war, Campbell joined and became a senior executive at Pan Am eventually helping to guide that airline into the new jet era. Now, that's a fitting career for America's first all-American ace. Douglas Campbell passed away at the age of 94, just before Christmas in 1990. As Campbell, a future airline executive, fought over the Western Front, history was being made for that same industry as Captain John Alcock and Lieutenant Whitten Brown of Great Britain made the first non-stop flight across the Atlantic Ocean, flying from Newfoundland to Ireland in 16 hours and 12 minutes, arriving on June 15, 1918. Just two moments that chart the course for aviation in the 20th century, this week, a hundred years ago, in the war in the sky. Okay, let's fast forward into the present, with World War I Centennial News Now. As our regular listeners know, this part of the podcast focuses on now and how we're commemorating the centennial of World War I. Welcome to our new Ask the Historian segment. Now, there's an old and oft-quoted but pretty wise maxim that says, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it. Well, it's interesting to note that many institutions in the U.S. government value the past enough so that places like the Senate and the House of Representatives have within them a permanently staffed Office of the Historian. I recently met the team from the Senate Office of the Historian and was interested and frankly excited to learn the role that they serve, but most importantly, the interest that they professed from the members of the Senate in getting historical briefings as they confront their decisions and challenges. I have to tell you, in a strange way, I found that very comforting. Well, it turns out that the U.S. State Department also has an office of the historian. And with us today is Thomas Faith, Ph.D., Historian, Special Projects Division, Office of the Historian, U.S. Department of State. Tom, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Tom, when preparing for the show this week, we looked over the World War I history section at the State Department's website. And actually, it's really good. It's really comprehensive. Is your office responsible for that? Yes, thank you. We are. To commemorate the centenary of the First World War, my office commissioned a series of studies about the Department of State activities 
during the period of U.S. neutrality during World War I, between August 1914 and April 1917. The research focused primarily on how department personnel in Europe responded to the unprecedented challenges they faced as they attempted to protect U.S. citizens, facilitate humanitarian relief efforts, and represent the interests of belligerent states while they were in enemy territory. We call the project War, Neutrality, and Humanitarian Relief. It's available on our website and will be available soon up on the web and online. Additionally, we also have digital editions of our Foreign Relations of the United States series volumes, which are primary source documents about the conduct of U.S. foreign policy during the First World War years from 1914 through 1918. Now, Tom, I never thought much about the State Department's role in World War I. just hadn't crossed my mind. But in an overview, the role after Europeans starting the fight in 14, up through our declaration of war and through the peace negotiations of Versailles, what kind of role did the State Department play? The Department of State before World War I is a relatively quiet place with relatively limited responsibilities. Our U.S. ambassadors represent U.S. interests abroad, and our consular agents mostly help Americans who are trading or traveling abroad. With the outbreak of war, however, that's transformed almost overnight. The sudden surge of war in August 1914 requires the U.S. Department of State to head up the search for the welfare and the whereabouts of an estimated 100,000 U.S. travelers who are outside the country and somewhere else. Their family members and others would like to know where they are, how they're doing, and it's the Department of State that really faces the brunt of those requests and that responsibility. Once the initial crush of relief concerns is finished, the U.S. embassies abroad turn to other concerns. They have to take up their responsibilities as a neutral power when the U.S. is still neutral in the conflict. And that means taking over the responsibilities of belligerent embassies. When the German embassy and the Austria-Hungarian embassy in England pack up, the U.S. embassy in London takes over their responsibilities. That means they're responsible for their property, their citizens, really everything. A big part of that responsibility is inspecting POW camps to make sure that the prisoners there are relatively well treated and that they're responsible for following up with the host government if there's any concerns. They're responsible for maintaining lists of hospital ships, which have to be transmitted to all the belligerent nations so that everyone knows what ship is helping the wounded. All the while, they're reporting and navigating the governmental apparatus of their host countries in time of war. So it's exciting work, I'm sure, but also very arduous. During the actual uh, years that America was engaged in the war, 17 and 18, was the Department of State, did they have a role? And what was it? Yes. Obviously, the Department of State becomes sort of more of a, in a constellation of different actors. Clearly, the General Pershing and his staff are communicating with the military staffs of the other countries at that level. The Department of State no longer has a direct line to belligerent nations like Germany and Austria-Hungary, but it still operates within the capitals of our associated allies and talking to their government about foreign affairs and trade and travel and all of those type of things. So then we move on to the armistice and the negotiations at Versailles. Does the Department of State play a role in that as well? First World War really transforms the department in terms of its roles and responsibilities. And after the war, it sort of solidifies that role. The Americans themselves are starting to think about the world in different ways. After the war, they're starting to think of themselves as global citizens, and the department has to step into that gap. Subsequently, the department starts some of the first sort of stabs at public diplomacy during the First World War. George Creel and the Creel Commission have an overseas farm that promotes U.S. policies abroad, and the State Department is heavily involved in that effort. How did this all tie into how we formed our relationships 25 years later for the Second World War? 
Well, it was directly related, I'd say. One of the first arms control conferences after the war was held in Washington, D.C., the Washington Naval Conference in 1922, and the department plays a key role in that. The Department of State is reorganized under the Rogers Act in 1924, which is supposed to modernize and professionalize the Department of State to help it deal with all the things that are going to be coming down the pike. Well, then arms control actually leads us to on a slightly different track I wanted to ask you about. I also understand that you're a bit of an expert on the use of gas during the war. And obviously, post-war, it's generally accepted not to be used. It's a horrific weapon. Is it all the size perpetrated on each other? How did that play out diplomatically? I wrote a book called Behind the Gas Mask, the U.S. Chemical Warfare Service and War and Peace. And in it, I described the use of gas and how it affected U.S. policies in the aftermath of the conflict. You probably know the Hague Agreement was an international agreement that was signed in 1899 before the First World War began that outlawed the use of gas projectiles. And even though that agreement was violated by all the belligerent nations during World War I, the United States in particular, but also other countries wanted to end that practice after the First World War concluded, and they felt that they could still do that through an international agreement. So the Geneva Gas Protocol was negotiated and signed in 1925, which again outlawed poison gas weapons of different sorts. And that effort continued through most of the 20th century up until the Chemical Weapons Convention was signed by the United States in 1993. But that stands as a hallmark. That's one of the greatest arms control instruments that's ever been written. Tom, somebody from our live audience just texted in wanting to know where to get the book. Behind the Gas Mask. It's available at Amazon.com and on the University of Illinois Press's website. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Thomas Faith is a historian with the Office of the Historian at the U.S. Department of State. Learn more about their role during World War I and about the use of gas at the link in the podcast notes. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. This week, we're headed to San Francisco and an iconic building in the city that many don't recognize as a World War I memorial. Here to tell us about it and some great commemoration activities is Ken Malley, coordinator for the San Francisco Armistice Centennial Commemoration Exhibits and Events for the San Francisco Performing Arts Center Foundation. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Ken, the War Memorial Veterans Building and Opera House was designated as a World War I Centennial Memorial in April of this year. It's a really iconic San Francisco venue. Can you tell us a bit more about its history? For many years after 1913, many prominent San Franciscans attempted to build a long-desired opera house, but it just didn't really take shape. And then after the war, one of our San Francisco veterans by the name of Charles Kendrick agreed to take up the measure and came up with the idea that rather than just an opera house, that we should, as a city, create a memorial to the Great War. And out of that, in the 1919 and early 1920s, came a public subscription to build a war memorial that would be both a veterans building and an opera house. More than a thousand local Bay Area men and women were killed in the war, and so it really did strike a chord with the citizens. Eventually, nearly $6 million was raised all through the public through subscriptions, as well as a bond issue. And construction really didn't begin until, oddly, 1929. 
just as the Great Depression began. And fortunately, because of the majority of the money coming from a general obligation bond, it really wasn't affected by the Depression. And in fact, it really offered sustained employment for the construction and contracting business. So the building was actually dedicated in September of 1932, and thousands of San Franciscans turned out for the commemoration of the opening. The complex was designed by Arthur Brown Jr., who also was the architect for our city hall. And the Opera House and Veterans Building was really the last Beaux-Arts-style project built in America. It is gorgeous. Now, who owns and operates it today? It's owned by the city. It's partially funded and operated through city funds, but it also has a board of trustees that are appointed by the mayor that oversee sort of the day-to-day operations. Now, you put together a program for the entire World War I centennial period, a lot of different things. What kind of events are you including? Well, first off, we've just installed a series of timeline of World War I banners in the lobby of the War Memorial Veterans Building. Because as I began to research what I wanted to do, it was clear that not many people really knew much about World War I. I'm also working with the American Legion, who is one of the tenants of the building, on another exhibit that's really focused more on the life of the soldiers on the front. And then thirdly, we have a memorial here that was placed by the Gold Star Mothers that's in our famous Golden Gate Park now been rechristened as the Gold Star Families. That's a large granite monument that has the names of nearly a a thousand men and women who died in the war. And we're refurbishing that with the Gold Star Families. The more that word gets around about what we're doing in our centennial commemorations, many, many more people are becoming, maybe not aware of it for the first time, but bringing it back in their memories. You have a really special program for the centennial of the armistice itself on November 11th this year. What is that planned? One of the really grand rooms of the veterans building, we now call the green room. But originally when the building opened, it was designed as a lounge and library for the veterans. Very much on the dial, if you will, of a French drawing room. But it's now been devoted mostly to special events. So I'm taking over the green room on November the 11th, and I'm hosting a reception. We'll have a history program on video, and then we'll have period music. You know, Ken, you and the venue really seem to be leading the city in its World War I centennial focus. And first of all, I want to thank you as the World War I Centennial Commission. Also, I wanted to comment, I don't know if you know this, but there are three other 100 Cities, 100 Memorial awardees in your area, and I just wanted to mention them. One is in the city of San Francisco itself, VFW Post 4618 and American Legion Cathay Post 384. And their project involves the San Francisco Recreation and Parks Department. And it really celebrates the Asian American contribution to World War I, which is important in San Francisco. Another is a memorial restoration in Berkeley and one a little further south in Carmel. And so with your permission, I'd like to connect you all together. That would be quite fine. Okay, well, thank you for bringing this really important moment in heritage to your community, and thank you for coming and talking to us about it. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and my city's involvement in the commemorations. 
Ken Malley is the coordinator of the San Francisco Armistice Centennial Commemoration. Learn more about the project and his program by following the links in the podcast notes. Welcome to our weekly feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the word cantonment. Camps around the U.S. where men would be gathered, organized, and trained before heading across the Atlantic. Though the men of the American Expeditionary Forces did a lot of training after reaching Europe, first they underwent drills and instructions at the cantonments. Another slang term for a military training camp is this week's phrase for speaking World War I, boot camp. Now, boot camp has often been attributed by the authorities on the English language, such as the Oxford English Dictionary, to the Second World War. But examples dating as far back as 1916 can easily be found, including this 1918 issue of the Galveston Daily News, where the story included, The fellows are kind of rusty on this wash-your-clothes stuff because they haven't done much of it since they came out of the boot camp, which is another name for a training station. The actual origin for boot camp is a mystery. It might have come from boot, military slang for a new and unseasoned recruit. Or it could have come from the fact that the newly enlisted men were provided new boots at the beginning of their training, spending the rest of their time in the camps, breaking them in, and of course, as everyone knows who's been there, polishing them. And then polishing them, running around in the mud and then polishing them. (laughs) But we do know that the word first appeared in the Marine Corps and the Navy. Today, boot camp is of course still used in the military and for all sorts of civilian training endeavors. If it's really hard and really intense, it's a boot camp. Boot camp, this week's phrase for speaking World War I. There are links for you in the podcast notes. Now for World War I war tech. Following up on our history segment from last week, we got such a strong reaction to our photograph of the inside of a submarine posted on Facebook that we wanted to take a look at the submarine. People have wanted to take combat underwater since antiquity, with the earliest known example being during the siege of Syracuse in 415 BC, where divers were used to clear obstructions, likely using hollow reeds to breathe. A lot of mostly submerged military vessels have appeared throughout history, but the big breakthrough came when human power was replaced with engines in the middle 1800s. The first submarine that did not rely on human power for propulsion was the French Navy submarine Plongeur. Launched in 1863, it was pretty slow and nearly unmanageable underwater. At the same time, the first self-propelling torpedo was invented in England. In America, the submarine H.L. Hunley was operated by the Confederate Navy in the Civil War, and she managed to sink a warship, the USS Housatonic. But submarines didn't become a core part of the U.S. naval strategy until World War II. The Allied forces did, in fact, have submarines on hand at the outset of World War I. Although not as well equipped as the Germans, the French had 123 subs, the Russians had 41, the Italians had 25, and the British had 57. Well, it was Germany who started the conflict with only 29 U-boats in their navy that wielded the underwater weapons to the greatest effect. 
Life inside a U-boat was crammed full of fumes and stresses. One German officer describes the experience. The living spaces were not cased in wood. Since the temperature inside the boat was considerably greater than the sea outside, moisture in the air condensed on the steel hull plates. The condensation had a very disconcerting way of dropping on a sleeping face with every movement of the vessel. Uh, efforts were made to prevent this by covering the face with raincloth or rubber sheets. It was really like being in a damp cellar. Now, the storage battery cells, which were located under the living spaces and filled with acid and distilled water, generated hydrogen gas on charge and discharge. Now, this was drawn off through the ventilation system. Ventilation failure risked explosion, a catastrophe which occurred in several German boats. And if seawater got into the battery cells, poisonous chlorine gas was generated. And from a hygienic standpoint, the sleeping arrangements left much to be desired. One awoke in the morning with considerable mucus in the nostrils and so-called oil head. Yuck. The U in U-boat stands for Unterseeboot, literally translated as under the sea boat in German. They were feared, reviled, and fought head-on by the Allies. The Germans went on to build 360 U-boats during the wartime. And despite losing half their subs during the conflict, the U-boat campaign was incredibly effective. The German submarine sank an estimated 5,000 merchant ships, 104 warships, and 61 of the British Q-ships, all at the cost of 217 U-boats. The submarine, an incredible feat of engineering, and this week's subject for World War I war tech. Learn more by following the links in the podcast notes. This week for articles and posts, here are some of the highlights from our weekly dispatch newsletter. Headline, Amazing New Collection of Digitized World War I Newspapers at Library of Congress. There is an amazing new set of World War I newspapers that are now available digitally from the Library of Congress. This vast online collection of World War I-era newspaper clippings are from a 400-volume, 80,000-page source. Headline, 2,641 poppies at National Museum of the Marine Corps honor the Marines killed in World War I. This week, the National Museum of the Marine Corps hosted a number of community activities in commemoration of the centennial of the Battle of Bellow Wood, including the planting of 2,641 artificial poppies in honor of all of the Marines killed during World War I. Each poppy included the name of a Marine his home of record, and the date and place of his death. Headline, Los Altos, California History Museum features exhibition on local families during World War I. The Los Altos History Museum highlights special materials seldom on display in its latest exhibition, Right Here Are Local Stories, which runs through July 1st. The display focuses on World War I artifacts and stories of local families affected by the war. Headline, I realized the story of the retreat was a book I had to write. Nancy Kramer, author and longtime volunteer at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, is publishing her fifth book on World War I, Retreat to Victory, about a Serbian army retreating and not surrendering in World War I. 
It's a story unknown by most Americans, but noteworthy for its heroism, courage, determination, and hardship. Headline. This week's Doughboy MIA, First Lieutenant Leonard Charles Atkin. First Lieutenant Leonard Charles Atkin of California was a replacement officer for the 372nd Infantry 93rd Division. He was killed during a night patrol when he rushed a German machine gun nest. Following the armistice, it was learned that German officers had seen that Atkin was buried with full military honors in the churchyard of the tiny hamlet of La Peve, some 40 miles east of Epinal, France. Nothing further is known at this time. Finally, our selection from the official online Centennial Merchandise Shop. This week, it's the incredible photographic book by Jeff Loudermilk, who we had on the podcast in last week's show. Upon receiving the diary of his grandfather, a World War I veteran, writer and photographer Jeffrey Loudermilk was inspired to honor the memory of George A. Carlson by traversing the same journey he took across Europe, reliving the experiences by visiting the towns, battlefields, and landscapes described in the diary. You can get this beautiful book, Honoring the Doughboys, Following My Grandfather's World War I Diary, at the Commission's official merchandise shop. You can get links to all these stories and to the official merchandise shop by subscribing to our weekly dispatch newsletter. Go to ww1cc.org slash subscribe or follow the links in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine. Hi Teo. It may not be as well known as the ancient sites of Greece, Egypt, and Rome. But World War I battlefield archaeology is an active and excited field. This week, we shared two posts on our Facebook page about ongoing archaeological efforts in France and Flanders. The first is a group of images of archaeologists hard at work excavating the site known as Hill 80, a German fortress in Wichschatz, just south of Ypres. The excavation is the result of a crowdfunding effort and has been very fruitful. The fortress was constructed in the early years of the war and is made up of an intricate trench system built between farm buildings. The fort was retaken by the British during the Battle of Messines, and it laid hidden until 2015 when it was discovered by archaeologists. The team has discovered the remains of some 81 soldiers in the past few weeks alone. That's already more than four times the average number of soldiers found in the whole of Flanders in a typical year, and they're not done with the excavation yet. Additionally, we shared a video about the barely visible traces of war seen in the lush farmland of Flanders today. It's a promotional video for the show Traces of War, an exhibit being put on by the In Flanders Fields Museum this summer, showcasing battle archaeology with artifacts from over 10 years of excavation in the area. You can find links to these images, videos, and more information on the exhibit in the podcast notes. Finally for the week, there's a great article from The Telegraph about the weird and wacky inventions of World War I. The British Imperial War Museum has combed its vast archives to create a curated selection of images displaying some of the more creative objects of the war, including paper mache decoy soldiers, a parachute designed for pigeons, fake trees, and ponies painted like zebras for added camouflage. There's even photos of seals and sea lions being trained to hunt submarines. You can check out the article at the link in the podcast notes, but keep an eye out for the Imperial War Museum to publish an entire book dedicated to these images. 
called Weird War One that'll be coming out in November. And that's it this week for The Buzz. And that wraps up episode number 76 of World War One Centennial News. Thank you so much for joining us. We also want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and storyteller, Alan Axelrod, historian and author, Tom Faith, historian at the U.S. Department of State, Ken Maley, coordinator of the San Francisco Armistice Centennial Commemoration, Catherine Akey, World War I photography specialist and line producer for the podcast. Many thanks to Mac Nelson, our hardworking sound editor. And we want to give a special shout out to our new summer intern, J.L. Michaud, who came up with that great first-person account of life inside the sub. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org cn. A great feature that you'll find there is an interactive transcript that's ideal for students, teachers, bloggers, reporters, and writers. You can also access the World War I Centennial News podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Podbean, Stitcher Radio On Demand, Spotify, or using your smart speaker by saying, play WW1 Centennial News podcast. That's the way I get to it. And now we're also available on YouTube. Just search for our WW1 Centennial YouTube channel. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Far away every day on the fighting line. Pat is doing all he can, of course he's doing fine. When the soldiers hear him sing, it fills them full of glee. You can make them happy if you sing the words with me. Where do we go from here, boys? Where do we go from here? Flip the pill to Kaiser Bill and make him shed a tear. And when we see the enemy, we'll shoot them in the rear. After two weeks of boot camp, our friend Gunny lined up his troops. All right, you sorry excuses for soldiers. If I gave you one hour to spend with anyone in the world right now, who would it be? Jones. Sir, this soldier would spend an hour with his mother, Master Gunnery Sergeant, sir. Oh, for pity's sake, Jones, drop down and give me 50. Jones began his push-ups. How about you, pretty boy, Smith? Sir, this soldier would spend an hour with his girlfriend, Master Gunnery Sergeant, sir. That's what I thought you'd say, pretty boy. Drop down and give me 20. Smith began to do his push-ups. 
Gunny walked up to another recruit and got right into his face. And how about you, Mr. Mitchell? Who would you like most to spend an hour with alone? Sir, this recruit would most like to spend an hour with my blankety-blank recruiter, Master Gunnery Sergeant, sir. Mitchell, you're dismissed. Go get some chow. <laughs> so long. <laughs>